Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. When dog trainers say the word shaping, images are evoked usually of a person with a bait pouch and a clicker. Maybe there's some sort of novel object like a box and the dog is doing stuff with the novel object for clicks and treats. And in reality, that's a really narrow view of what shaping is. And I want to talk about how all good training is shaping, whether you understand it to be that or not. The idea for this topic struck me as I was watching a webinar on training dogs to automatically disengage from wildlife. The webinar was from Josephine Lindstrom. I will link where you can find her on social media in the notes. And as I was watching it, I was loving how beautifully she was able to shape that disengagement behavior. Because what shaping actually is, is selecting for the successive approximations of your goal behavior. What shaping is, is understanding where you are and where you want to be and what the steps in between are. So in the case of disengaging from wildlife and shaping that behavior, you first have to be able to predict chasing versus disengagement and select for the approximations of disengagement. When most trainers approach a wildlife chasing issue, they start with chasing behaviors and they start by trying to correct or prompt alternatives. That is simply not going to be as successful as shaping a disengagement response. But shaping the disengagement response does require a keener eye. It requires better skill. Comparatively speaking, it is easy to slap a consequence on a behavior that you don't like that will discourage that behavior from happening in the future. And it's also easier to see the behavior begin to happen and redirect the behavior with cues. Neither of those will be as strong as shaping a different response, especially if you are shaping that response early and often. I think a lot of the success I have with my own dogs and the success that some of my friends and colleagues have with theirs comes from this ability to shape what we want early and often. I'm raising my puppy Carson right now. She's about four and a half months old. And every single day is me shaping the future behaviors I want to see. It's me limiting reinforcement access for the things that I don't want to see continue and enhancing reinforcement access to the things I do want to see continue. Sometimes this is with deliberate training on my part, and sometimes it's just with adjustments to the environment. 
One thing that has popped up for Carson, unsurprisingly, is a little bit of resource guarding behavior, usually with food, more often with food than anything else, and typically directed at the other dogs in my home, although there are glimmers of it directed at me as well. This is not a problem. When I say resource guarding, if you are envisioning my puppy snarling and snapping and hovering over something that she has, you're not seeing what I'm talking about. You're seeing the full-blown problem. You're seeing the dog belting across the field after the herd of elk. You are, that's what you're seeing. And if that's the only way that you can see what resource guarding or wildlife chasing, you will be hopeless to prevent it. You have to see those early approximations of that behavior and you have to shape for other behaviors. So just one example of shaping for other behaviors with the resource guarding is that I often throw big scatters of food for my group of dogs and they all engage in eating the scatter just fine without fighting. Even though all of my dogs have some level of resource guarding towards other dogs. I noticed that Carson would eat the food very quickly and very kind of aggressively with her mouth, just like kind of biting at the food. And that she would also shove her body into specifically Rhea's space in a scatter. So that's early glimmers of guarding that I need to do something about. So I immediately started deliberately doing scatters every single day with Carson on a leash to keep her a little further from Rhea because that's the dog that she most wants to guard against. And as long as her body language was soft and she was snuffling in the grass and effectively scattering, I continued to throw food over the top of her. Over time, I allowed her to be closer and closer to Rhea and I made sure the food was really, really flowing when she was closer to her. She no longer needs a leash in these scenarios and she can even scatter off of solid, unnatural surfaces with the other dogs, which is a tough thing. Snuffling through grass or dirt is much easier. If I hadn't seen those early behaviors and stepped in with a shaping procedure, which is that I found the place at which she could be non-guardy and I built up from there with reinforcement, I might wind up with a dog that can't engage in the group scatter, which is an important part of the management that I have with my dogs. Of course, out on trails, I'm constantly shaping behavior. Off-leash reliability is a big, fat shaping project. It is ongoing. You must be able to see nuance and you must be able to reinforce nuanced behavior. Again, easier to use a control device than to use your eyes and your trainer brain all the time. But for me, the outcome of having dogs that are reliable off-leash without extra tools is completely worth it. A couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I talked about the topic of engagement. Engagement is shaped the dog willingly seeking reinforcement from you instead of the environment is something that must be built up 
by successive approximations. You can't pop the dog out of the car and expect them to give you sustained eye contact and stay with you as you fumble through your training session without a lot of background. You have to start where you are, know where you want to go, and start selecting those steps in between. So this week, pay really close attention to your dogs. Pay close attention to the behaviors that are growing. Ask yourself if they're growing in the direction that you want. And apply some steps to grow them in another direction if the answer is, no, I don't like that behavior. Let me know over on social media and, of course, in Patreon where you got to. Okay, and some Patreon questions for you. The first one comes from Lauren. It's a long question. I'm not going to read the entire thing, mostly because what has happened to Lauren with her dog is uh, really upsetting me and really irritating. So I'm not going to read the entire thing, although Lauren, I did read the entire thing in Patreon. So essentially, Lauren's asking for a phrase or advice on verbal or nonverbal feedback to give to a stranger who is soliciting attention uh, from Lauren's dog. So she gave several examples of people whistling at the dog, clapping at the dog, generally speaking, distracting her dog when she's in public. She gave examples in which the stranger was trying to be helpful, but wasn't, and other situations where the stranger was being a jerk. She needs a script that can be rehearsed. And so my canned responses for these things might warrant an entire episode, but essentially if somebody is talking to my dog and I don't want them to, I tend to give them a body language signal of putting my hand out with my palm facing them in kind of a traffic cop like stop, which tends to make them look at my face. So then I am looking at their face and then I say, stop doing that. Typically, I don't even say please, but if it makes you feel better to say please, you can. Don't say anything about your dog. Don't say my dog is distracted by you. Um, My dog needs space. Just point out their behavior and what you need them to stop doing. So please stop doing that. Don't talk to my dog. Leave my dog alone. We don't need your help. You know, those kinds of things I probably would leave out. We don't need your help. Um, (laughs) and then you can escalate. Usually people will stop. If you actually get their eyes and you tell them to stop, typically they will. Now, if they don't, then I'm going to escalate and I'm going to simply repeat myself. I'm going to say, I asked you to stop doing that. And then if they keep doing it, I will say, excuse me, did you not hear me? I asked you to stop doing that. Understand, Lauren, that being assertive is not being rude. And it is important for you to be assertive in these situations. So it is reach towards them to get their attention so that their eyes come to your eyes. And then when you have their face, tell them to stop doing what they're doing. You can put some kind of vest on your dog that says, in training, do not distract. I'm not telling you to fake your dog as a service dog. I'm saying that you can put a vest on them that just says, in training, do not distract if this is a really common issue for you. The things that you've tried mostly involve your behavior, removing yourself from the situation, and those things are not working so well for you. So 
use your flat open palm to get their eyes when you have their eyes tell them to stop if they do not continue to tell them to stop do not just kind of give into it and, and try not to like smile and laugh just tell them to stop and i'm so sorry people are jerks all right next one comes from elise elise writes my question is about dogs reacting to unneutered male dogs my 18-month-old unneutered male miniature American Shepherd Tippet has been on both ends of this behavior. On the receiving end, when he was about 16 months old, he was jumped by a male Golden when he was off-leash playing with some other small buddies. Golden came running up and jumped him, ignoring all the others. I'm guessing it was because he is unneutered, though I can't be sure. I don't know the Golden's neuter status. On the delivering end, Tippett's behavior began at about 12 months. It looks like this. Walk up close to other dog, point his muzzle at the side of their face near their ear's neck, growl, hackles up, bare teeth, and if not interrupted, snap. After seeing a few examples of it, I set up parallel walks with a gentle, tolerant two-year-old German Shepherd with impeccable dog skills. We picked a remote, neutral spot with lots of room and dirt road miles away from people. Tippett was on edge when we got out of the car and he smelled the other dog, but they settled nicely into a parallel walk on leash. After about five minutes, we removed the leashes. Both dogs are accomplished off-leash dogs with solid dog skills. They were fine if they stayed away from each other, but if they ended up near each other, either by accident or when one came out of a stream and didn't see the other behind a bush or when the other dog wanted to play, my dog exhibited the usual growling, hackling, and teeth bearing. When this happened, I called my dog, and he came away every time. One time, the other dog was offering such good play invitations that I did not interrupt, and Tippett snapped at him, jumped on him, and came away with that dog's fur in his teeth. The other dog just backed away. Good boy. With all other dogs, Tippett has great skills. We live in the mountains where all dogs are off-leash, and he's good with every dog we meet other than unneutered males. He has several besties who he plays with regularly. It is only the unneutered males that he displays this behavior with. So the questions are, what is the function of this behavior? Is there anything I can do to work on it? We do meet unneutered dogs off leash and sometimes he's going to run into a big one and won't put up, who won't put up with his BS. And three, would neutering affect this behavior? Obviously it would stop other dogs from the pattern of jumping him, but would it stop him from being the aggressor? Okay, Elise. Lots of stuff going on here. I'm going to go through your questions. Number one, what's the function of the behavior? We don't really know. We can assume if it is an intact male targeting other intact males, that it is about females. Females don't need to be present for this to be about females. So it's essentially about a resource. And it's essentially, hey, you're the kind of guy who's going to take that resource if I ever come across it, right? So like that's kind of the fun, that's the assumed genetic advantage of this behavior showing up because I don't think this behavior has been like repetitively reinforced in your life. So I don't think it's about it developing an environmental function. I think that it is probably more about him developing what we call same-sex aggression, which is not uncommon in intact males of a variety of breeds. I don't know how common it is in the miniature American Shepherd. It's not super common in Australian Shepherds. And so I'm just not sure. What you can do to work on it has more to do with 
like you said, setting up opportunities to go on walks with intact males, but I would not be letting them off leash so they can practice the garbage. He practiced a bunch of garbage with that dog off leash and he probably got reinforced for it because that dog backed away. So I would set it up to where he's around them, but he's doing other stuff. He's doing downstays, he's doing healing, he's doing agility homework, but he's not, and maybe he's walking, but he's not allowed to interact with them. And I would work really, really hard on his recall, obviously. Would neutering affect the behavior? It could. We don't know. If it did, that would be fantastic. You do say obviously it would stop other dogs from jumping him. That's not true. Um, You have no idea why that gold retriever attacked him. And neither do I. It is actually pretty uncommon to just run into random dogs that attack your dog just because they're intact. So neutering him is probably not going to change that. But it could change the resource-based feelings that he has that are driving this behavior. There are plenty of dogs for whom this is a really strong ingrained behavior that neutering does not change. And there are plenty of other dogs that neutering it does change it. So that's kind of up to you. I wish I had better answers for you than this. This is one of the things that you deal with sometimes when you have an intact male and the management around it is that you are able to recall him when he starts to be a jerk. So if he starts to display the body language towards another dog that you that tells you that's an intact male and he's about to be a jerk, that's when you call him. And if his recall is good enough, he will not get himself into trouble. Last one for this week comes from Lizzie. Lizzie writes, trying to put things succinctly and sparing you a lot of background conversation slash debate, flying with dogs in cargo. How do you assess whether or not it's reasonable for the individual? Tough one, Lizzie, you don't know until you do it, if it's going to be okay for that dog. So some things that I do is I make sure they're comfortable in the airport. If they can walk around the airport and feel pretty good in the airport and be pushed around in their crate in the airport, that's a really, really good start. There is no way to adequately prepare them for being taken onto the tarmac and put on a plane. So then that's when I'm asking about the resilience level of this individual. It is probably going to be a little scary for most dogs. I'm going to ask, are they sound sensitive? If they are overly sensitive to noises, it's probably not for them. I'm going to ask, do they have stranger danger? If they're afraid of strangers, probably also not a great idea for them. Those are, those are two big ones. But if they like strangers, they're comfortable kind of being handed over at the vet, for instance. They are comfortable walking around in the airport. They're comfortable being pushed around inside their crate in the airport. And they're not overly sound sensitive. And they, generally speaking, bounce back when things are kind of hard for them. I would say that they're a candidate for trying. Then you're going to watch the residual stress behaviors. How are they when you arrive at your destination? Are they frantic and needing and clawing to get out of that crate? Or are they pretty calm again in the airport? Do they sleep well that night and function well the next day? or do they have like GI distress for a week and have a hard time eating? Like look at the residual stress behaviors after the flight. The other just little nugget is I I kind of think flying with dogs is cumulative, meaning that it gets harder for them as they get older and you've got kind of a prime period of time in the middle of their life where they will tolerate it best. And at a certain point, they will kind of tolerate it a lot less and maybe even stop tolerating it. So that's another thing to think about in the grand scheme. And that is it for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, 
I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.